certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. In 1996, in a quiet, semi-rural suburb on the outskirts of Perth, locals were woken by the sound of yelling and a terrible scream that suddenly stopped. Jane Rimmer's body was found close by two months later. This is Claremont in Conversation. I'm Natalie Bongiolo, joined today by the West Australian newspapers Emily Morton and Tim Clark. Thank you both for racing out of court again today to bring us all the details for this podcast. No worries. <laughs> um, last week you told us about the witnesses who reported hearing blood-curdling screams the night Sarah Spears disappeared. Today, witnesses gave very um, somewhat similar chilling accounts of the night Jane disappeared. Yeah, well, um, I think it was this uh, the second sort of lot of uh, couple, second couple from Wellard um, had said sort of that the wife there, she had said that she'd heard like a blood curdling scream um, on this particular night. And I think she, both both um, couples, like Wellard back in those days was still a semi-rural area. Yes. It was very underdeveloped. There was like probably, I think both both couples had said that there's probably about four or five houses right. within within that area. So, you know, it, you know, you could hear a pin drop sort of thing is what they were saying. It was very quiet. So if there was a noise, they were going to hear it. And um, she had said that she was a light uh, sleeper and that she heard this noise, like this this sort of really uh, scream that she just couldn't. She just, I think at the end of her evidence, she said it was something that she'd never ever heard before in her life and never wanted to hear again that's how she sort of described it mm-hmm. um and and the husband as well he'd sort of said that he was a, a heavy sleeper and he'd heard that as well so he was woken up by that and he sort of described it as being about three to five seconds um and then dead silence and nothing after that yeah it was it was it was pretty uh, as you say similar to the to the Mosburn park screens that we've heard about um, in relation to Sarah, but um, uh, if anything, the way they described the, the, the two couples today and yesterday, the way they described this, these screams was even more chilling and more piercing, and perhaps because it was in such a, a rural area at the time. Um, uh, and it was slightly different evidence, but obviously uh, similar. The first couple, um, the in, indeed the first gentleman, um, said that when he heard the scream, he heard some words to go with it, um, very loud and very clear. Um, and then they would, they, along the lines of, leave me alone, let me get out of here, and then screams to go with it. And then the, the second piece of, of sort of evidence was that it, they were just screams. And perhaps most chillingly that they, they were described as sort of, you know, very high-pitched, blood-curdling, but then stopping immediately mm. sort of mid-scream and, they would, and then there was just dead silence. I think he sort of said it was a very high-pitched traumatic voice of a woman that was mm. um, Kenneth Mitchell. So the Mitchells were the first couple right. that, that sort of gave evidence this morning and then the other couples were the Sturks. So, and they both lived on sort of, I guess, I don't know, Tim, would you say it's probably almost equal distance from mm. where Jane's body was found, but on other opposite sides. sides. Yeah, yeah. Opposite, opposite sides, and almost, as, as M says, equidistant, about 
we measured it on on Google Maps today, sort of 1.3 kilometres one way and then 1.1 kilometres the other way as the crow flies. And, and interesting that they should both hear on different sides of of that site where Jean's body was eventually found, um, you know, very similar, um, have very similar experiences, um, you know, very, very early in the morning. So um, the Mitchells are the couple who heard more of this agitated yelling and what have you. Did they uh, hear a man and a woman yelling or was it just a female yelling? I think um, Kenneth Mitchell, he said he only heard a female voice and then his wife Judith had said that she heard arguing but she could only really hear a female voice. She just sort of said that like it just was an agitated voice. She said it could have been two. That was is argumentative. But then she only really yeah. remembers hearing a woman's voice. So even though she thought it sounded like there was an argument, she still only could really recall hearing a woman's voice. Mm, and she also gave slightly vague evidence about possibly seeing a figure behind mm. some bushes as well. Um, so w- when the screams rang out, um, they both said they sort of tried to look out of the window but there was some scrub and bush and trees in the way of the, of the the area they thought the screams came from but she mrs mitchell said she thought she also saw the figure of a person moving um across the basically across the road but couldn't be any more um certain or ex- or exact than that basically and what time of the um night are we talking is the early hours of the morning yeah i think that the well judith mitchell said around two or three a.m right i think um the sturks well um cheryl stirk said she thought it was anywhere between one and three they all said that they were all asleep so they couldn't really sort of yeah they'd been asleep for a little while so um when they woke up they weren't really sort of dead certain of the of the time but they just knew it was dark and and, and they had been sort of woken up by these screams and nothing else and the Mitchells who thought they saw something or someone in the in the scrub, did they see anything else? Did they see a car or did they hear a car? Mr Mitchell, yeah, he said that he, he saw um, or he heard the car. He didn't, and then Mrs Mitchell said she saw, I think, the lights or the reflection of the lights as it, as it went down Miller Road, I think they were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because Mrs Mitchell was saying earlier that when she said she saw a figure or a shadow of a person and I think she even said that the type of car that she 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 didn't recall the exact model or anything all she said is she saw the top of the car and she thought it was like a sedan looking car so but then and Mr Mitchell's yeah. recollection was just the lights basically he right. he had a, a very clear recollection of bright lights um, and they would have been bright because of presumably the lack of street lights, the lack of ambient night um, in that area at that time, yep. um, and he and he definitely said he he remembered them leaving, um, but that was that was all he could remember of the vehicle. And did they report anything to police the next day or or down the track? Yeah, it was basically prompted by um, the discovery of. of Jean's body, which right. was, I mean, quite a, quite a bit later, um, around about 55 days later, actually. Um, and uh, they basically sort of plotted backwards in time, um, realised that would have been around the time um, that they heard the screams and then reported them um, to the police almost, you know, almost straight away. And the other family, who are the, is it the Sturks? Sturks, yeah. Mm-hmm. The other family um, who heard not so much the arguing, but heard the 
blood-curdling scream. Um, how long was this scream going for and, and was it prolonged or...? They had a. They said they only heard like a very short time and I think um, Mr Sturk had said that when he heard the scream it was like three to five seconds and then he sort of said in his evidence that um, if you count that, five seconds is actually quite long for this really sort of like scream, high-pitched scream. So... Um, but that was all he sort of said it was. That's that basically how it went for. They said it was much shorter than what the Mitchells had thought they'd heard because they heard arguing. and Well, Mrs Mitchell heard arguing before, so she believed it went on a bit longer. Mm. So, But the Sturks didn't, didn't seem to think it went on as long as that. But, uh, I mean, he's absolutely right. It doesn't sound long, but uh, I reckon if you... I guess if you did try and scream, uh, you know completely um loud and, and long four or five seconds um uh, it, it, it would um, it would stick out in your mind and certainly stick out in in such yeah. a sort of rural quiet area um such as that and it seems quite disturbing this scream that was effectively cut short almost if is i guess is what they were saying mm, yeah um, and that's what stu- i mean that's what stuck with me the most i've got to say out of that evidence uh, the fact that uh, that you know one minute the uh, the air was full of this noise and then yeah just dead silence after that. One of the other things I think Mrs Stirk said in her evidence today as well was sort of about two to three weeks later after they heard that scream, she noticed a smell or they all noticed a smell driving mm-hmm. past the riding school. So the riding school was sort of down the road from them and she said that they just assumed it was a dead animal. She said like there's always like there was kangaroos that were around all that sort of stuff and she just said it would become this thing with them that when they drove past to wind up the window and, and it was just like, Listening to that today was just like, oh, like it just knowing that. And she just said it was automatic pilot. You just put it up like and and that's sort of what she had remembered from that time as well. Was she, um, I mean, that that is, it's so disturbing to think about it. Um, Was she affected when she was recounting this? Um, They were, I mean, they were were pretty solid um, citizens, obviously, then um, and now. But um, as Em said, the very one, basically one of her very last comments on the stand when um, when she was asked um, about you know what she'd heard, and, and she basically said, "I'd n- I'd never wanted to hear it before. Mm. I certainly didn't want, never would, would never want to hear a sound like that again." So, I mean, once again, it's just one of those moments in time that obviously sticks with with people um, so long and. and so far into the future and i wonder i mean when they you know they obviously have both woken up the husband and wife did they discuss what they thought might be happening if it's such a quiet area or did they say oh what could that be or i think the the sturks said that they just thought it was like a domestic so they put it down to that and i even think the mitchell said something similar where they just thought it was an argument and they put it down to that and I guess you kind of think you think back to whether when in the middle of the night if you're woken up to something and you're sort of like half asleep and you go oh is that something you don't know yeah. the neighbours are having a fight yeah or... but the Mitchells did say they they got up and peered out their window to have a look and I think Mr yeah. Mitchell said he even sort of went outside briefly just to look around but couldn't see anything so yeah. Um, but yeah like they just sort of heard it went back to sleep after that and sort of didn't really think much of it until obviously a bit later. Yeah, that's it. It's obviously not until later when Jane's body has been found that both couples have put two and two together and it's at that point that they've contacted the police with with what's happened. Yeah, well, I think even maybe the police had contacted them once the body was found and sort of did a door knock, I guess, of the neighbours right. and then they've gone, oh, hang on a minute. So, 
Is this um, also at the point at which they um, got the watch that you talked about yesterday and that the, the bloke who had fallen off his horse um, had alerted police to this watch that he'd found? Yeah, that was a similar prompting of, of, of that um, discovery was, he said, the media reports surrounding um, Jane's discovery. Um, and uh, today we got the evidence from, from, the part, from his riding partner um, on that day, um, mm-hmm. and she told a very very similar story um, about how the watch was discovered and, you know, how he'd shown it to her um, and then, you know, how they basically thought um, not much of it um, until um, the sort of the media um, firestorm uh, sort of blew up when um, when Jane's body was discovered um, and then, yeah, and they, they both came forward with, with that information um, to the police as well. And Tim, I meant to ask you yesterday, um, was Jane's body found in was it was it dense bushland or not? Because obviously, you know, we've got this picture of of this bloke. He falls off his horse mm. and he finds this watch. And two meters away mm. um, is this young woman's body. So, is it quite dense there? Do you know? Well, it wasn't. We saw a, um, an edited photograph um, during the opening statements of, um, of 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 where Jane's body was found it's it's off so it's Woolcott Road um, which was a at the time was basically a sort of semi unsealed road it was it was a bit of a country lane basically um, and it was just off there but it was in quite dense shrubland but not as not like not jungle like if if you like yeah. um, and it was and it had been quite Sort of, um, I think it was hidden, wasn't it? Yeah, it was covered. It had been covered by branches and, ah, okay. and torn off foliage. So you would really have to have looked and mm-hmm. been virtually on top of it, basically, as the lady who did eventually discover the body was. She'd, she'd walked off the road and into the bush to actually pick some death lilies um, that she'd spotted on that day, and that's how the discovery was made. Um, so, I mean, it was pre- pretty well covered, but also the photo that we saw, which, as I say, had been blacked out um, in part, um, did show that there were, um, uh, you know, there was evidence there if if you looked carefully enough. Yeah, but who's looking for that, right? Exactly. Mm. Um, now, the third young woman to go missing was Kira Glennon, and that was in March of 1997. And today uh, the court moved into Kira's life, and yeah. you heard a little bit about her life. Can you just uh, describe her character and, you know, what had she been doing for a living and, and what was her life like prior to her disappearance? So Kira was a lawyer. Um, she was the oldest of the three um, women that, that were murdered. She was 27. Um, she she's of Irish background. Her parents were married in Ireland, but she was actually born um, in Zambia, in Africa, mm-hmm. and then they moved to Perth. And when she was very little, um, she was m- much like Jane and Sarah, um, very well liked, very social, um, very attractive, um, intelligent, outgoing. Um, but uh, obviously a little bit further down her path in life. She yeah. she um, studied law, um, got articles at a local law firm, um, found a good job, um, but then decided to, um, you know, as lots of young men and women from Australia do, uh, go travelling. She yeah. went overseas to the UK, to various other um, uh, continents, 
um, to basically, you know, have a break and also sort of reassess her professional career. But had come back to Perth for two reasons. One, that she'd done her travelling, um, sort of sated her wanderlust, but also her sister Denise was getting married and she was going to be um, her maid of honour and was obviously going to attend the wedding, but also was organising a hen's party. And she'd only been back in Perth maybe a couple of weeks Maybe even less than that. I think um, they said she arrived back on March first. So yeah, and she disappeared on the fourteenth. Um, yeah, and got and got back into work quite quickly. Um, and it was basically a works function and drinks with work colleagues um, as an early celebration of St Patrick's Day. Um, that's why um, she was out that evening. Um, she'd gone gone for drinks at, at, at one place, um, and then, as we've heard so many times over the last couple of weeks. Um, the decision was made to go into Claremont yeah. and go to the Continental with um, with her friends, which is which is what she did. And I guess um, I think probably lots of people have wondered, you know, because she had been living overseas, she'd only been back in Perth for two weeks. Did she know what had been happening in the Claremont area? Did she know that two girls were had gone missing, or because she hadn't lived here, maybe she kind of didn't have that same picture that other people had. Yeah, I think, well, um, I know one of her friends or work colleagues gave evidence today, um, Abigail Davies. Um, she sort of said that at this work drinks, they, all, they worked at this law firm, um, Blake Dawson Waldron, and they'd been there for pretty much most of the evening. And then there was some discussion about going out afterwards. And I think Ab- Abigail suggested going to Claremont and, and Kira had sort of ummed and ahed about whether or not she wanted to go. Whether, whether she knew that or not or whether it was for other reasons because um, she'd had a, a disagreement or something or a run-in with a colleague that morning and she'd sort of sort of emailed her before and said it was like to, her, to Abigail that it was a bit awkward and then there was also um, her sister Denise's hen's night was meant to be the next night so that was meant to take place on the 15th. So, I mean, for any other, many other reasons, like it, could, it could have been but the fact was she was a bit hesitant about going but then yeah. in the end obviously she went. And did but she stay very long? Or? Yeah, well, that's what I was about to say, Matt. Only, she then only stayed for about 20, 25 minutes. Yeah. Um, not even long enough to have a drink, um, as far as we can ascertain. Um, she got to the hotel, um, met up with sort of mutual friends um, of her friends, um, was in, in, you know engaged in the conversation. Um, and then after about 20 minutes or so, basically just said, I'm, I'm going to go. Um, sort of moved away from that group and then obviously um, moved away from the hotel. And you also had um, the statements read out today from her parents. Are these the original statements they made um, at the time of her disappearance? Um, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, they were, um, or, or certainly based around the facts and, and, and what happened um, at that time. Um, and as with um, the Spears... Um, and the Rimmer family, um, you only you, did, you didn't need um, their first-person account, as these were also being read in by one of the one of the prosecution lawyers. Mm-hmm. So you, I mean, you could just tell by the words, um, the pain, and uh, and obviously uh, bemusement um, when uh, um, Kira didn't return home, and then um, it was basically her father. Dennis was going to go on a on a on a boat trip with some friends from the UK. Um, he'd left that Saturday morning. Um, he'd noticed that Kira wasn't home, but didn't think much of it. Uh, and then her mother Una's statement said much the same thing. 
she Una even in that statement even chastised herself yeah. by um, by saying you know I, I noticed Kira wasn't home but then I told myself she's a 27 year old woman who's travelled the world <laughs> she shouldn't be expected to check in with me or tell me what she's doing at all times but then as the day um, went on um, and particularly with um, her sister's hen night, hen's night coming up and her being such a big part of it. Um, Una basically said in her statement that she began to realise that this wasn't something normal. This wasn't just a you know, that she, you know, slept with friends or you know, gone somewhere without telling her mum and dad. And so she rang Dennis, and Dennis abandoned his boat trip, came back to the house, and basically, yeah, uh, that's when their nightmare started that that yeah, morning. Yeah. I think Una said that she'd sort of contacted. About 10 a.m. in the morning, contacted Kira's friends and sort of didn't have any success. And then one finally called back and told her, "Oh no, she went to Claremont, like to the Continental Hotel, with a couple of other colleagues." And so she was a bit concerned. And then she was like, "Okay." And then she sort of then called Dennis again and told him. And in his statement, he said, "Like because of their heightened concern already, that that's yeah. when he's like call police." So. Um, and then that's when sort of Una then called police and sort of said, I like, you know, she's not come home. And, and, and obviously it went from there. And linking that to the fact that she had gone out in the Claremont area. Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, you know, rightly so, a 27-year-old woman who's just come back from travelling the world, you know, mum and dad don't normally check in on you. Yeah. No, she would have but thought, I mean, you, yeah. yeah. But you can imagine, I mean, and, and, it's, and it's basically in the public domain that as soon as that call was made to police that day they were very very fearful yeah um of 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 what had transpired or what was going to transpire um i think one of the detectives at the time had even said you know it was the it was the call i i, I was dreading was mm-hmm. coming but also um part anticipating was coming um and uh, and basically you know macro detectives who were already looking for Jane and Sarah I mean they they, they swooped in and took over that, that that as a missing persons case almost immediately and it was just um how long after before they found Kira's body it was not that long was it, it was April 3rd I think her body yeah. was found so less, less than a month less yeah. than a month on the yeah. other side of Perth essentially so from where Jane was found were Dennis and Una in court today while their statements were being read Dennis was there um, but we haven't seen um, Mrs. Glennon. Um, not much. So she mm. was here. Um, she was here for the first day, I think. Um, but I don't think she's been back since. Um, Dennis had had been a very regular attendee up until yeah. early this week. Um, but he was in, in court this morning. Um, they actually, um, for the first time in a while, put the um, put the, the, the court is full sign up this morning. Oh. So. Um, there was, um, as, as we've said before, um, pr- prosecutors are certainly giving um, family and supporters um, um, good notice uh, as to what they're going to be doing on certain days. Um, and um, once it, it was obvious that Dennis um, was in court today, then we'd sort of twig that we might be moving into evidence um, concerning Kira, and, and, that, that, and that certainly proved to be the case. And uh, was there any kind of reactions or any behaviour that was different to the ordinary with um, the accused today? Um, no, not really. Um, he was taking he was, notes. Yeah, just, mm, yeah, his usual sort of stoic self, t- taking notes, um, taking an interest, um, 
taking in the video that was that was shown during some of um, the evidence given by Kira's um, um, friends. You know that they were taken through parts of the night that were that were captured on CCTV. Um, um, but, but yeah, no, I mean just just very much a. Um, what's becoming a normal day in court for yeah. uh, for yeah. us and for him. And is it still quite pacey with um, the the pace at which you're going through the material in court at the moment? Is it? It fluctuates. So some yeah. minutes it's just madness, and then it, in terms of us being journalists, having to write things down, yeah. and especially because I'm blogging, it's just some days I'm just like, please talk slowly. <laughs> like I just want them to talk slowly. Um, and but when they go through the more technical evidence, it's it's much more slower. Yes. But then obviously when they're reading out witness statements that's very fast because there's like no break when they when someone's on the stand it's a question and answer format so for, for us it's easier to go okay this is what they're asking and then getting the, the answer down um but it yeah it's it's it fluctuates and was there yeah. much activity from the defense today i know yesterday there was quite a lot of objecting and um cross-examination was there much of that today yeah there was a, there was a little bit um and uh, for the first time um uh, Mr. Uh, Edwards's other barrister, because um, he's got two acting for him on his defence team, um, a lady called Genevieve Cleary, another very experienced barrister in Perth, has worked um, many sort of murder cases and other serious cases. Um, she she was on her feet for the for the first time today, doing some of the um, cross examination of of Kira's workmates, um, and it was quite a pointed little bit of cross examination actually, because at one point. Um, we were told during the evidence that at one point in the night, um, Kira had taken her jacket off and had basically thrown it or placed it under a table um, yep. when they were at the pub. Um, and a work colleague had basically picked up the, 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 the jacket and said, oh, don't do that, Kira, look at the state of the floor or something along yeah. those lines, um, which, you know, is a you know a little vignette that I'm sure thousands of our listeners have, have gone through. <laughs> or handbags in, or yeah, all sorts exactly. of things go under the table. But in this case where, you know, every tiny little bit of forensic material becomes so important, um, it, 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 Ms, Mrs. Cleary, well, Ms. Cleary was, was, was keen to point that out and... and, and confirm that happened because when it comes to it um fibers particularly in kira's hair and on kira's shirt that that she was basically wearing that night and her body was still found wearing um will become vital because Mm. those fibers the prosecution are going to say link um mr edwards's car and mr edwards's workwear to her hair and her shorts, mm. but the prosec- uh, the defence will be working very hard to try and prove that they those fibres could have come from somewhere else. And obviously, if a jacket has been on a pub floor, then who's yeah. to say that okay. some blue or grey poly- uh, polyester fibres couldn't have been picked up on that jacket from that floor and then transferred when Kira's put it back on, either to her hair or her shirt. There were two witnesses as well that sort of in in sort of answering those questions back about where was that jacket when she left um and both had said that they saw her like wearing it around her waist Mm. so there was a a woman who didn't know um kira but had been introduced to her sort of through her sister because they were sitting outside um on the balcony at the continental and had been introduced to her by um kira's friend abigail and this woman um, Monique O'Neill just said, like, she didn't know her, but she just remembered she saw her leave and she saw her heading towards um, Sterling Highway and just remembered seeing, because she walked past her, that she um, still had her, like, white top on, um, black skirt, and then just had the jacket tied around her, ba- uh, her waist. So 
And so she rem- she remembers that and she possibly was the last person to see her. Yeah, very interesting. And it's very interesting that um, this barrister, Genevieve Cleary, has done the questioning. So, Tim, do you know, um, is that what happens? Do certain members of the defence or the prosecution have a certain line of inquiry that they're pursuing? And when it comes to their turn, they stand up and, and do their part? Is that how it works? Do they break yeah, it down? I, 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 think we're, um, I think we're finding, and that's certainly been the case on the prosecution side, who've got three barristers. Um, obviously, we've mentioned Carmen, Carmel Barbara Gallo a lot because she's the boss, um, but she's got two sort of more junior barristers with her, um, a lady called Tara Payne and a, and a young um, gentleman called Brad Hollingsworth, and they're both part of the DPP team. And all three of them this week even have, have taken taken turns basically in questioning. Mm. And it's pretty obvious that they've got um, their, their various sort of um, projects or, or briefs within the brief, if you like, that they've been they've been working on because they've been questioning on certain things. Um, and yes, and so it would appear that Miss Cleary has basically taken on the you know the Kira Glennon um, sort of personal um, witnesses um, and worked on those. And um, and you, you you can see why I mean, with a, with a with a with a case this vast, it would be yeah. almost impossible for one person to be to have to do all you know all the questioning and all the planning about the questioning that's going to be asked. So um, so yeah, that's what we've seen and that's what we anticipate we'll we'll continue to see. And I think we have one more question for you from a listener, Karen Casella. And I'm not sure if you will have the answer to this, but was there any discussion in court about the Karakata rape uh, being linked to a personal emotional turmoil that we've heard about of Mr. Mm. Edwards? It's, around, yeah. it's supposed to be around the time the lover moved into the into their house, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's yeah. exactly right. So it hasn't actually been mentioned during the trial um, as such, Um for a couple of reasons, mainly because the Karakata offence doesn't need to be proved anymore, so that's probably you know that that becomes a little less important. But when it does come to motive, um, it might well get um, revived. And Em's absolutely right. So um, in previous hearings, we've been told that the the possible emotional spike that they would point to there was. Um, the so-called third wheel that we we did the bonus episode on last mm-hmm. week, when he it was around about the time that he moved in um, to the to the marital home. It was around about the same time um, in February '95 when that um, when the rape uh, occurred. Uh, any ideas what's coming up tomorrow? Um, well, it's a shortened day in court tomorrow. Um, we, we we start uh, start a bit later and finish earlier, so we're only going to squeeze um, a few witnesses in. Um, but we anticipate that they will uh, will continue um, on, on about um, Kira um, and sort of her last night. Um, we would think um, that we might get to maybe not tomorrow, but certainly next week, the sightings of Kira after she left the pub, mm-hmm. um, and they're going to be vitally important. And as we've mentioned a couple of times, the last of those, the last of those 12 sightings were the, the so-called group of three burger boys. Yeah, I'm um, very curious to hear what they have yeah, to say. who saw or, or say say they saw Kira leaning into this 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 car which is of, of great interest so um i wouldn't be i wouldn't be surprised if we um if we 
got on to, to some of those. Um, and very late today, in fact, the last thing today, Mr. Jovic um, stood up and basically um, sort of had a little conflict with the judge and basically confirmed what we'd all thought, that um, the, the civilian witnesses um, that we've been hearing about so far um, have rattled along at a really good pace. And so they're probably a little bit ahead of schedule that they thought. So we might actually finish those possibly mid-next week, but certainly by the end of next week. Um, and then that'll be that for Christmas. Yeah. Um, and whenever we do finish those, that will be that for Christmas. So if we do get through those by Wednesday or Thursday, we won't sit again then until after Christmas because that um, will basically um, cut off the civilian witnesses and then we'll, it looks like we're going to go on to some forensic-type witnesses um, um, which they want to start uh, you know, as a, as a fresh block of evidence, basically, and don't want to start that, um, you know, piecemeal, do, do a couple of days just before Christmas. And we've been warned that um, everything will slow down a little bit yes, with this scientific <laughs> forensic evidence. Yeah, well, that's what, um, you know, the great Tom Percy said yesterday. It's going to be mind-numbingly boring. <laughs> we, we hope... But also um, very, very and important. And our other, what, uh, the other journalists covering the case will hope to make it not so boring for, uh, for those that have been following us. You have all been run ragged. It's been incredibly busy and, of course, you know, not just doing podcasts but live blogging and writing extensive coverage in the newspaper. So we, we do bear a thought for you and thank you for making the time to jump out of court every day and come and do this podcast with us. Um, so thanks for, to you both for today and thank you to those of you listening. And you can contact us at Claremont Podcast, that's one word, Claremont Podcast, lowercase, at wanews.com.au. And hopefully you can join us tomorrow as we wrap up week three of Claremont in Conversation. Talk to you then. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.